0: The listeners would understand a threat to the recording.
1: But it's a threat to more than the recording. It's a... Ah, you mean a threat to the podcast. Of course. But will they believe us?
0: If they see it happening. If they see the script. A
1: script. It's what distinguishes a good podcast from a bad one. (laughs) Facts. (laughs) True. (laughs) shots
0: fired at every other podcast honestly yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too specific <laughs> yeah Just like you they know people, who they are you, you know who you are <laughs>
1: Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. Mm. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. (laughs) And Leo. Yes. Speaking of groundbreaking novels. Oh, Dune. Do you have one in (laughs) mind that we should talk
0: about today? Uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> no, no, no. Children of Dune! Yes! We made it!
2: Ah!
1: Wow, we're here. The Children of Dune book club has officially
0: begun, folks! I'm over the moon. Both of them. With excitement. <laughs> yes. So exciting. I Oh, I can't wait. Okay, I'll stop delaying us talking about the book.
1: <laughs> yeah, true. Let's just get into it. Today marks The official start of our Children of Dune book club series. Right. We'll be diving into the pages of this iconic book covering roughly 50 pages per episode as we explore this incredible story and the
0: dense lore of Frank's universe. Indeed. And if you've been on a book club journey with us before, you also know the drill on spoilers. We are going to be 100% spoiler free. We are only going to talk about what has happened up until the page of the week's reading.
1: Now, of course, we also go super incredibly deep on the lore and universe of Dune, pulling from other sources like the Dune Encyclopedia and the larger canon. So even if you are a returning reader, we hope that you'll still get a lot out of our analysis and discussions and deep dives on these incredible stories.
0: Now, today's episode is, you might notice, available for all listeners on the public feed and the Patreon feed alike. But the rest of the series will only be available to our patrons for the next three months. So, if you're on the public feed, enjoy, and then know that you'll have access to this way down the line. But why wait? Become a patron. Support us. We put a lot into this show. (laughs) So much. And our patrons make it possible to give the show what it deserves. So think about supporting us. You'll see also that we have our full schedule listed in the show notes.
1: That's right. And look, becoming a patron, yes, it's the best way to support us. Yes, it gives you early access to book club episodes. But you get other great benefits too, like completely ad-free episodes. Mm-hmm. You get bonus bloopers and cut clips every week. and you'll get an invite to our exclusive Discord server where you can chat with me and Leo and get to know all of the other great Dune fans in our community.
0: Indeed. It's a really, it's a fun chat room. It's cool. Yeah. As always, a huge shout out to our QueSat's Hatterack level patrons, Sake and Nate Hyde. My goodness, fellas. I feel like if I could read you guys, 50 pages at a time. <laughs> I couldn't hold back. I would I would binge read you all. All of you. Truly, truly. <laughs> I don't know if that's... Dive deep into all your chapters. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh. Uh, uh, anyway. Thank you, guys. Seriously, your generosity <laughs> is incredible. Thank you. Truly. Thank you so much. Another fantastic way you can support us over at Gamjabars by checking out our merchandise, gamjabarshop.com. Folks, There is new merchandise in the store. We have totes. We have cool mugs. We have, what else do we have? We have apparel. We've got socks. (laughs) We have socks. socks. Cover your footsies. Walk without
1: rhythm socks, y'all. Go check that out right now. They
0: are cute. I can't buy them. My feet are too big. Buy a pair for me. Wear them for me, folks. Very exciting. As well as some tank tops some hoodies cool apparel, some amazing art from artists we commissioned to create original Dune art. It's dope. Just check it out.
1: <laughs> yeah. Gomjabarshop.com, folks. Big refresh on our store. So go go check the new things out. Indeed. Also, we want to hear your thoughts and your questions as you read along with us. So reach out to us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. And something kind of new and different we're trying for this book club series is that we have built into the schedule mailbag episodes that will be entirely dedicated to responding to as many of your amazing messages as possible. So be sure to, again, check that schedule in the show notes and make sure that you have hit send on that email in time for us to include it in one of those mailbag episodes. Now, as always, with these book club episodes, we will begin with a summary of today's reading and then we'll dive deep into our two key takeaways. And finally, we'll wrap up with some deep cut, delicious spice morsels. Mm. Yum, 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 yum.
0: <laughs> Fresh <laughs> from the oven. Delicious. <laughs> well, with that, our housekeeping is done. We are primed and ready to go. We're like the Our hands on our crisp knives, ready to fucking murder some (laughs) (laughs) off-worlders. But first, let's take a quick break. Let's sharpen our knives. Stick around. We'll be right back with a summary of this week's reading.
2: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Welcome back, folks. Hope your knives are as sharp as ours. Let's do it. Let's get into chapter one. Yes. So this book opens up in an iconic location. We are at Siege to Burr. Hey, we know that place. Heard of it. (laughs) And in fact, we are with an iconic person, Stilgar, Javier Bardem.
0: Javier Bardem. Mm, Look at him.
1: Now, Stilgar is in Siege to Burr. He is examining the rooms of Mwadib's children for danger as they sleep. We learned that this is, in fact, a bit of a ritual for Stilgar. He does this often, now that he's sort of taken on this responsibility as guardian to the orphaned twins of his former friend-slash-messiah, Paul wadi Atreides. Right. Stilgar, in this scene, is restless and irritated. All of these thoughts of Paul are racing through his mind, and we... Get a bit of context of where we are and when we are. This book begins nine years after the end of Messiah, after Paul has walked out into the desert and presumably died. And it's obvious that a lot has happened in these intervening nine years. Things on Arrakis have changed. right? And Stilgar's inner thoughts kind of clue us in on some of these changes. Because as he's checking for danger... yeah. He's also contemplating this what if scenario. (laughs) Sure. Where he's wondering should he kill the twins?
0: (laughs) Should I murder these children? Hmm.
1: (laughs) And that's shocking, right? That's like, what? Stilgar, buddy, what are you doing? Daycare. Right. Not a good look for this daycare you're running, bud.
0: <laughs> Hand on knife. Just like, dude, you gotta chill. <laughs>
2: chill.
1: Yeah. But look, Stilgar, again, is divided. There's a, there's a lot of internal turmoil. We spend most of this chapter inside Stilgar's head as he's sort of thinking back on everything that's happened, basically, across book one and book two, conveniently, like, getting the reader caught up. <laughs> right, right, right. And one part of this that was shocking to me was that it seems like Stilgar, at this point in his life, has almost turned his back on Muad'Dib's religion. Quote, It was the religion of Muad'Dib which upset Stilgar most. Why did they make a god of Muad'Dib? Why deify a man known to be flesh? Muad'Dib's golden elixir of life had created a bureaucratic monster which sat astride human affairs. and quote. Mm. That right there is so much of what we talked about in our Messiah book club. The issues of combining religion and government. Stilgar, now that Wadib is gone, has been able to sort of step outside of that and see the faults in it. It's a shocking turn for this character. Right. It's also clear in this first chapter that Stilgar is a man that is split in two. He's divided between the old ways of the desert Fremen, the ways that he knows and grew up in, and this new universe created by his friend and messiah, created by Muad'Dib. He thinks, quote, how simple things were when our messiah was only a dream, end quote. Yikes. Yeah. This is a changed man. We talked a lot in our messiah book club about how Stilgar, the great Fremen Nabe of siege. To Burr and Dune Messiah basically got a glow down. Like, basically, it was just like Paul's secretary. Yeah. yeah. And it's obvious that, at least to me, that this is no longer the case. Now that this like aura of Paul Muad'Dib that sucks everyone in is gone, he's kind of gone back to being that knave we knew, that wise and intelligent and an independent man that rose to leadership among the Fremen.
0: Yeah, I I think he has some distance on it, some perspective that he didn't have when he was like literally filing the paperwork of the empire <laughs> <Yeah>. that spans <laughs> the universe. But I think another part of it is the verbiage, and you know, he, a lot of what he's thinking about is what they did to create Muad'Dib's religion today, and yeah. what we're not seeing is over the last nine years, how has things how have things changed since Messiah, and we're not sure, but we know that Stilgar is not a part of that.
1: Totally. Perspective is a great word. I'm glad you use that. I think Stilgar here has a fresh perspective on everything that's happened. Right. And he's, he's kind of rethinking some things. He's also, in fact, reflecting on his own role in all of this, too, because he's not innocent. No. He had a hand in raising Paul to power, and he had a literal bloody hand in the jihad. Quote, without me, there would have been no Muad'Dib. I am there with Muad'Dib and Chani and all the others. What have we done to our universe? End quote. What a question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh my gosh. You can, you can, the guilt is just like dripping off the page here. Yeah. What's obvious here as well is that not only has the universe been changed and reshaped by what, Wadeeb and chani and the fremen and stilgar have done but arrakis has as well we learned that the desert that once encompassed the entire planet is now only half its former size it's nuts <laughs> that dream of a green arrakis that we have been talking so long about is now becoming a reality and as is classic in dune <laughs> yeah the reality does not live up to the dream. It is not what it was all cracked up to be. And Stilgar reflects on how much things have changed and not necessarily for the better. Quote, The mythic paradise of spreading greenery filled him with dismay. It was not like the dream. And as his planet changed, he knew he had changed. End quote. (laughs) What a profound thought.
0: Again. If my babysitter was thinking these thoughts as they were looking (laughs) over my kids, I would be a little concerned. (laughs) Right,
1: right. Uh, He is a conflicted man, and I really feel for Stilgar here. He's been through so much. Yeah. Now, to close out this opening chapter, we learn a couple of important facts through Stilgar's thoughts. We learn that Lady Jessica is returning to Arrakis after more than 20 years away. And no one is really sure why. (laughs) Why is she suddenly deciding now is the time to come back? It's a big mystery here at the start of the book. Right. The twins are pre-born. We get confirmation that just like Alia, they are pre-born and act far older than their nine years of physical age. They might look like children, but they have the generational knowledge and memories of thousands of years. Right. Third, Rumors are swirling that Alia has become something that the Bene Gesserit call abomination, and that the twins are also at risk of succumbing to this as well. We don't exactly know what that means yet, but rumors are abound. Right. And by the end of the chapter, Stilgar puts his knife away, decides he's not going to kill any children, (laughs) and that's how we close this uh, first chapter out. Sorry if y'all thought this was going to be a happy book.
0: (laughs) Man, welcome to Children of Dune. (laughs) Chapter two begins with the twins, Leto and Ganema, waking up, going through their morning routine. You know, they're getting dressed in the dark, getting ready for breakfast, putting on capes, cowls, eating gruel, and always, 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 fucking with Hurrah. Yeah, baby. (laughs) Also, lovely to see Hurrah and Really fun to see how these two superpowered nine year olds are kind of like, like, yes, they're superpowered, but Hurrah also gets a good showing in this chapter. Yeah. It is clear in this chapter that everyone is nervous about Jessica's arrival, and the twins discuss what could have pushed their grandmother to end her self imposed exile slash retirement. She's been sipping pina coladas on the beach. (laughs) She's coming back. And they suspect it has something to do with the rumors surrounding Alia. We also get a sense now of what maybe Abomination is, because the word's been thrown around now for like two books. The idea, vaguely, is that one of your genetic memories, these personas from the past, begins to take over your body. Yikes. But the twins are also wondering, if that's happening to Alia, why is it not happening to us? We are also pre-born, and we don't know why we're not succumbing to the same maybe thing that's maybe happening to her, but we're not 100% sure. We're pretty sure, but we're not 100% sure. They have some theories, and we'll talk about Leto and Ganima a little bit later as one of our takeaways, but the other kind of missing X element here is Alia has been heavily dosing with spice, trying to get to uh, Paul's level of prescience. Right. And that's something the twins have not done deliberately. They've been avoiding spice trance specifically. So maybe that's a thing. Maybe that opens the door for someone to step through. Alia arrives, speak of the devil, (laughs) to (laughs) greet the twins and kind of be shitty to them. She's just in a foul mood. And today she's reminding them to behave. She's like, listen, you gotta be kids. Quote, we think it unwise for you to provoke dangerous thoughts in my mother. Irulan agrees with me. Who knows what role the Lady Jessica will choose? She is, after all, Benny Jezerin, end quote. It's obvious that Ali is on edge. She's dreading her mother's arrival. She's fearing what it could mean. And the whole conversation with the twins is very like Alia going, oh, maybe it's going to be okay. And both of the twins going, nah, you are so scared. What is happening? <laughs> very tense conversation. Yeah. As Alia walks away to meet Jessica at the spaceport, Ganema sheds a tear, gives water for the dead. And she and Leto basically acknowledge here that they are seeing the sign of abomination in their aunt. But the weird part of all of this that they're really getting caught up on is that Alia seems totally, totally blind to it in herself. Quote, Leto shook his head, wondering, why does Alia not see what we suspect? Is she too far gone? End quote. Wow. Which, God, heartbreaking. Yeah. And... They also agree in this moment that they have to avoid the temptation at all costs. They have to be extremely cautious with the amount of spice that they intake, avoiding that spice trance because it really does seem like that is the thing but they're still not sure. Right. And man, whatever is coming is a big deal. (laughs) This chapter is dripping with foreshadowing and there is this sense of Like, something is going to happen. Yeah. Good golly, Children of Dune, Chapter (laughs) 2.
1: For real. Yeah, so many unknowns. In Chapter 3, we join Alia in the Ornithopter on her way to the spaceport to meet her mother. And she's got a lot on her mind. The stress level is at an all-time high today, which is fair. I also understand that. My stress levels are also (laughs) high when my parents visit.
2: <laughs> Same. Yeah.
1: We learned that Alia has actually been unable to see the future no matter how much spice she has taken. And this has been an extremely frustrating experience for her. Unable to wield this incredible power that made her brother a god. We talked about the near overdose incident from Messiah. Right. And here we get this quote Without a vision of the future, I could fail. Oh, what magic I could perform if only I could see as Paul saw. End quote. Mm. And there is that temptation that Ganema and Leto see in their aunt. Alia wants the visions and the power that Paul had, but she can't get it, no matter how much spice
0: she intakes. Quick side note here. It strikes me, we spent all of Messiah in Paul's head dealing with the fact that he hated his prescience and was trapped by it and was like this is the worst fucking thing in the world so for 10 years later to see people still deifying people closest to him who should understand him better than anybody else in the universe right to be like man i wish i had his power really shows me clearly that paul didn't let a lot of people in to what he was feeling and the effects of being the Queeksatz Hatarak in Dune Messiah in a way that is shocking. It is shocking. It's almost like Alia, who
1: was so close to Paul and is maybe the only living person who is even like relatively like biologically similar to him. Yeah. Didn't learn her lesson by watching what happened to Paul, and in fact is chasing the same thing that brought about his own downfall. <laughs> yeah. And I have to imagine to your earlier point that the pressures of ruling have something to do with this as well. She is acting regent of this massive empire that Paul left her. A lot of responsibility has been dumped on her shoulders, and I think the pressure is getting to her. And she doesn't think she can rule as effectively without those prescient abilities that helped Paul rise to power.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense.
1: She also decides, speaking of foreshadowing from the last (laughs) chapter, she decides that the twins must be forced to undergo the spice trance <laughs> yeah. in order to activate any prescient abilities they may or may not have. Alia cool. is going to get to that prescience <laughs> no matter what it takes, even if it means injecting spice into the veins of her niece and nephew.
0: Glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> this is a
1: horrible daycare.
0: Yeah. Get The Atreides Daycare, one star on Yelp. Negative, negative. Four stars on Yelp.
1: <laughs> Wild stuff. So this is clearly the children taking spice and avoiding spice has clearly been established early on in the book as like a as a stress point, as a plot point that we're gonna be we're gonna be following here.
0: <laughs> that really is. We got two employees at this daycare. One is like, should I knife these kids? The other one's <laughs> like, let's force them to do LSD. <laughs> yeah.
1: Ugh. Now, beyond just the prescient stuff and the pressures of ruling, obviously the more immediate thing on Alia's mind is the arrival of Lady Jessica. After all of these years away, her mother is coming back. And the big question hanging in the air is why? There are some big hints here, actually, that Alia's rule hasn't exactly been the smoothest. Quote, why was Lady Jessica returning at this moment? Had stories been carried to Kaladin? stories of how the regency was and then her thoughts sort of trail off here and are interrupted but i imagine if she had completed <laughs> that sentence
0: working perfectly <laughs>
1: <laughs> is not what she would have thought right exactly <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so to me this is a big red flag that the regency has been tumultuous at best right we also learn through her thoughts that gurney will be returning alongside her mother as well And rumor has it that the two have become lovers, Hmm. which Alia sort of files away mentally and takes note of because, hey, that might be good leverage at some point. She might need to use that against her mother.
0: Yeah. Two famously hard to blackmail characters, but good luck, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Gurney Halleck would give a fuck. You're like, I heard you're sleeping with so-and-so. Gurney's like, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm fucking your mom. What about it?
0: Yeah, you heard me play the ballad. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> I wrote a song about it. <laughs> let me say,
0: let me actually <laughs> sing you this song. This is this is a good opportunity. I'm gonna drop an EP <laughs> all about me fucking your mother. Okay. <laughs>
1: so true. So true. Chapter three then ends with Alia musing about Duncan's mentat analysis of why Lady Jessica is coming back. Duncan has theorized that Jessica wants to take the twins for the sisterhood. The Benny Gesserit need these Ads Haderach genes. And so perhaps Jessica is coming back to take the twins. Right. Because rumor also has it that Jessica, who split from, famously split from <laughs> the Benny Gesserit yeah. in the first book, has perhaps come back into the fold 20 years later. So that's where the chapter ends. A lot of questions, even more theories, almost no
0: answers. To be fair, good way to start a book. Get the reader asking questions, lots of big mysteries to unravel. We're getting going. It's good. Yeah. And listen, chapter four does not make it better. (laughs) (laughs) Because chapter four, we're on a whole different planet. We're out on Seleucus Secundus. We are with a pair of tigers. Pair of Tony the Tiger Laza Tigers. <laughs> and a Sardaukar soldier. Now, the soldier speaks to someone on the radio as he's basically watching these tigers and a pair of, oh, like nine-ish year old, I don't know, twins? wearing, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know. A Tradian garb. Okay. <laughs> Seems a little on the nose. <laughs> but that's what they're doing. They're looking at these kids and these tigers. And the voice of the radio is like, you know what? Go for it. Do it. Hit the button. So he activates his remote controlled tigers, his RC tigers, (laughs) which really is. He's using servo transmitters, which are like implanted in the brains to give the tigers a signal, basically. And the sort of writing here implies you can be very uh, specific with the controls, but they're kind of trying to train the tigers to do this without someone controlling them. Yeah. And he's like, get, "Go get them, tiger." Literally. "Get them, tiger." And the laws of tigers murder the they're children. Like, That's great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and they <laughs> murder the children as Tony would. if you activated Tony's servo transmitter. Yeah, for uh, <laughs> real. Tony is not to be trusted. <laughs> I
1: don't know why this isn't obvious to everyone. <laughs>
0: We've been building for the last 60 episodes to this truth, which is do not trust Tony the Tiger.
1: Yeah. It's not great, folks.
0: It's bad. (laughs) Well, the kids die quickly, which is apparently exactly what they wanted. They're like, hell yeah. Good job, Tigers. He killed those kids. And as the soldier waits for his transport to pick him up, he's, you know. Fantasizing. He's in his head. He's like, man, that tiger killed those kids so good. When the tigers kill the actual Atreides twins, oh, I'm going to get so many promotions. I'm going to be like senior deputy executive. It's going to be great. And we're going to replace the twins with Faradin, who is, get this, grandson of Shaddam IV. Hello. Hello. So, kids will die, Baradin will reclaim the throne, the Golden Lion Throne will be back, and I'm going to get so many heckin' promotions. Call me Bursag, (laughs) might as well.
1: (laughs) Okay, chapter five. This is a doozy. We're at the spaceport in Arakeen, and Lady Jessica has arrived, folks. And (laughs) there is a lot to say about this moment. Uh-huh, and we'll be breaking it down in a lot of detail later in one of our takeaways, actually. So for now, let's just quickly move on and say that Jessica's return to arrakis is one for the history books, and we'll we'll get into more detail later. indeed. there are a lot of emotions at play for Jessica right now as she steps foot back onto this planet where <laughs> her life and the destiny of humanity changed forever, basically, right. She thinks to herself, quote, once more into the dragon's mouth, end quote.
0: I think that every time I fly into L.A.
1: (laughs) 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 We're still not entirely clear what her intentions are, but it's becoming obvious that one of the main reasons she has returned to Arrakis are these rumors about her daughter's turn to abomination. It's one of the first things she notices when the royal entourage comes to greet her from that entourage stilgar steps forward and in a sort of cute moment gives jessica a warm welcome right after her agents have killed and captured <laughs> the people in the crowd who didn't kneel fast enough right again a lot to say about that moment wait till the takeaway folks we got <laughs> right. thoughts <laughs> right stilgar here is as blunt and honest as ever he says quote welcome home my lady it's always a pleasure to see direct and effective action, end quote.
0: Man, you murdered those people so well. What's up? <laughs> How you been?
1: How you been? It's been a while. <laughs>
0: yeah. The welcome from Alia, however, is less
1: warm, and in fact, she is outright hostile and argumentative towards both Jessica and even Stilgar. She scolds Stilgar, questioning his loyalty, and then turns to her mother, quote, Alia blinked. Glanced once at her mother, suppressed the inner tempest, and even managed a straight-toothed smile. I am filled with joy, mother, she said. End quote.
0: The biggest fucking (laughs) ellipse I've ever seen.
1: Right. The longest pause.
0: I love you, mother. Mother. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Man, talk about awkward family reunions.
0: I also, Jessica hits her with the, yeah, it's great to see you too. Daughter. <laughs> daughter. Ugh. And Amazing. it is
1: clear that over these past 10 years, these two have drifted apart. Right. Jessica then turns to Irulan to ask about the twins, about her grandchildren. <laughs> and Frank takes this opportunity to absolutely dunk on poor Irulan.
0: I feel like Frank decided to be mean to her at <laughs> yes. some point between Messiah and now.
1: <laughs> yes. He very much was like, I'm going to be as mean as possible to this character. She's you know my what? punching bag. Fuck
0: Irulan. <laughs> Frank, why?
1: <laughs> it does seem, however, that Irulan is very out of her depth in this moment.
0: It's true. That's true.
1: Quote, Irulan had never been the most accomplished <laughs> adept in the Benny Gesserit. <laughs> <laughs> valuable more for the fact that she was a daughter of Shaddam IV than for any other reason. Rude. Often too proud to exert herself in extending her capabilities, end quote. Damn, Frank.
0: That last part's a little bit better because it's like, listen, it's it's a matter of pride that she doesn't, like, realize her full potential. But when you have, like, the omniscient voice of the text being like, Irulan's never been the most accomplished. It's like, gosh, that's so mean. So right.
1: mean. Poor Erlon. Look, we stand Irulan on this podcast. Yeah, 100%. In this scene, Irulan is immediately suspicious of Jessica because that's what she's been told to be. Ali has been spoon-feeding her all of these doubts about Jessica's true intentions. And Irulon just believes her. Tough look. It's a tough look for her not to, like, use her Benny Gesserit abilities to like know. suss out the situation and understand true motivations. She just kind of accepts everything at face value.
0: Okay, here's here's a defense of Irulan just to consider it. Irulan is a Bene Gesserit trained through and through. Yes, lifetime of Benny Gesserit training also means believes the Bene Gesserit kind of credo. I think Irulan trusts Alia as the fulcrum that the Bene Gesserit had been planning for 10,000 years so rather than just look at this spiteful bratty daughter of Jessica who's like manipulating Irulan and Irulan's got no thoughts only vibes between her eyes <laughs> she's just showing, <chilling, laughs> like accepting whatever she's told by Alia, bear in mind that Alia could be very easily and is deified by people and Irolan might fall into that camp of like well, she's a literal superhuman. What do you want me to do? She, she told me to be suspicious. She has powers I can't even fathom. So, yeah, I'm suspicious. Right. I don't know. Just trying Th- to balance the scales. Again, we stand Irulan. I want her to look as good as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Poor, simple Irulan.
1: <laughs> anyway, moving on from Irulan. Next up, the priest's push forward and they begin to annoy Jessica who does very little to hide her disdain the priests tell her that there is an official illustration ceremony that awaits the holy mother of Muad'Dib in the keep she needs to come right away to attend this prayer or whatever and Jessica's not interested she openly is just like no and in fact she's really annoyed by one of these priests that pushes forward Named Zabatelef.
0: (laughs) Glad you have this chapter (laughs) summary.
1: (laughs) Damn, I I listened to the audiobook and I forgot to note how the audiobook said it.
0: Zabatelef? Zabatelef. Zabatelef. (laughs)
1: Zabatelef. She's annoyed by by Zabatelef, who is clearly a loser. Like, I'm annoyed by him too, to be totally honest. (laughs) He sucks. She does note, however, though, that the other priest called Javid, has more to him than meets the eye, and that perhaps he could be used as leverage against Alia. Quote, She saw Javid's intelligence as valuable, a temporary weight in the balance. If he could be won over, he could be the link she needed, the line into the Arakeen priesthood. And he was Alia's man. End quote. Right. So after noticing that, she does reluctantly agree to go to this lustration ceremony, but only if Javid accompanies her. And that's where our chapter wraps up. Take note, folks, how both mother and daughter are scheming against each other, both angling for some sort of leverage. Plans within plans, baby. Dune.
0: Ugh, Dune. Great chapter. Great chapter. Which leads us to our final chapter of this week's reading. We rejoin Leto and Ganema. They're on a rocky outcropping near Seach Tabur as they look out at the sunset. Leto strumming a little balisette. Oh, Aww. so sweet. It's a gift from Uncle Gurney. But he's clearly troubled by something, and he's really all of his thoughts are like, man, how do I bring this up? How do I talk to Ganema about this? This is tough. Now he sings a song. Kind of plays his way through a song, a, quote, mucky old song, which is <laughs> kind of cute. But he's looking out over the terraformed landscape of Arrakis, pondering these incredible changes, right? The changes his father precipitated. Leto brings up Sand Trout as his sister is like, what the fuck are you bothered by? Like, what's happening? Talk to me. <laughs> and he's Why are like-
1: we randomly talking
0: <laughs> about fish? Yeah, he's like, sand sand bugs. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? You're acting so weird, and he's not letting her in yet. He tells her, and this is nuts, and actually this is like a fun thing to blow people's minds if they haven't read Children of Dune. He tells her that Arrakis was once a lush, beautiful green planet, and then the sand trout were brought from another planet which made it into the desert that we all know and love, which is crazy. Nevertheless... The ecological transformation of Arrakis is killing off the sand trout, which means all of the worms will die too, which means spice melange would be gone forever from the universe. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, indeed. You mean the most valuable
1: substance in the galaxy, the whole reason anyone can travel anywhere?
0: And also that like 80% of the people running everything are addicted to and would die <laughs> if you removed it? Right. Yeah. How do I buy my home on peel now? Not with a handful of spice. Certainly not. <laughs> you need like half a handful of saffron or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Oregano. <laughs> Oregano. <laughs> it's so funny because I don't, is that even as expensive? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> now the twins decide they have to convince Stilgar of the danger to basically the future of the galaxy. Right. Now, Frank's environmentalist views really show themselves here. They're really (laughs) peeking through the folds. Here's a quote. Quote, As one, their heads turned, and they stared out over the moonlit desert. It was a different place now, changed by just a few moments of awareness. Human interplay with that environment had never been more apparent to them. End quote.
1: Yeah. A lot of this chapter hits on that human interplay line. Yeah. The effects that humans have on their environment, for better and for worse. And as we've discussed on this podcast before, Frank was a well-known environmental activist. And a lot of those ideas found their way into the Dunes books as well.
0: Right. Leto finally stops dancing around the topic and he reveals an earth-shattering thing to Ganima and lets her in to what has really been bugging him this whole time. Quote, I'm beginning to have prescient dreams, Ghani. End quote. Uh. Burpo. <laughs> that is potentially bad. <laughs> that is very dangerous. The other thing that really struck me is, throughout this chapter, he's thinking about how similar are we? It's nuts. Me and Ganima, we're so similar. But there are differences. And some of these differences... Yeah are alarming and confusing and are getting newer, are growing, are changing. So, yes, Leto fully states it out loud. She gasps. She's like, what the fuck? Me too. Yeah, it's startling, especially after a chapter of just subtle hints and little, he's like, yo, bro, I'm prescient. Sorry, sis. Burying the lead for sure. Nevertheless, it is upsetting to him, and it's scary to him. He's not sure what this means. He reveals that he's had a dream of being enclosed in armor and visiting Jakarutu, which is the first time we're hearing of it. But Ganimas like, that's a myth. That place doesn't fucking exist. What are you talking about? (laughs) Apparently, it's this sort of mythological taboo place that... that is mentioned in Fremen's stories, kind of seen as this myth, and he's going, no, it's real, and there's a threat from it that I have to deal with. Also, the preacher is involved somehow. I'm not sure. Ghanima is understandably unsettled by this. She is shocked. She's a little bit horrified and really too scared to even have more of the conversation. They basically let it end there. And... He also knows how upset she must be. And he knows intimately, like, what does this do to her psychologically to know this about something that's happening to me and not her? Right? Yeah. Right. Uh, so we've been dealing with foreshadowing the last six chapters. Turns out Leto has too. <laughs> yeah. Children of Dune is off to a fucking start. We got RC Tigers. We got mother-daughter drama. The worst daycare daycare. on Arrakis. (laughs) Should we knife them or drug them or both? It's like, maybe we should just take care of them. Like, honestly, maybe we should just give them an education. Also, kill those people. They didn't kneel fast enough. We're off to a fucking start. Children of Dune, baby. (laughs) Buckle up. Buckle up. Should have told you that before this week's reading. (laughs) Yeah.
1: A little too late now. Hope you're buckled up now. Right. (laughs) So that wraps up our chapter summary for the first 50 pages of this book. What an incredible opening set of chapters. We're now going to take another short break. Now's your opportunity to buckle up if you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But don't go anywhere, folks. There is so much more to talk about when we come back. We're getting into our key takeaways. And of course, our spice morsels are bacon in the oven. Indeed. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back, everybody. We hope you're securely buckled in. We hope you've changed the AA batteries in your Laza Tiger remote controllers. (laughs) Let's get into the takeaways from this week's reading. And first up, we have to talk about (laughs) Jessica arriving. Oh, my God. And murking people just right away. (laughs) What an entrance. You talk about like RuPaul's Drag Race. That's how you make yeah. an entrance. <laughs> For real. It's wild. Let's talk about it.
1: <laughs> okay, let, let's let's get into it. Before we actually talk about the specifics of that chapter, let's set the stage with some context. Yes. Because the conditions in which she's returning to Iraq is now are dramatically different than the last time she stepped foot on this planet. It has been twenty years and things have changed. Right. A reminder that 20 years ago, she first came to Arrakis alongside her Duke. And in those intervening decades, she became a Fremen Reverend Mother. She gave birth to a preborn daughter who now rules the galaxy. She watched her son become a Messiah and she witnessed the bloody explosion of a jihad in his name across the entire known universe. Right. So. It's no wonder that her thoughts are a little bit bitter as she looks out over this planet standing in her transport. Quote, a convulsion of history had imprinted this place into men's minds and beliefs. End quote.
0: What a cool sentence. <laughs>
1: yeah. And the word choice there, a convulsion of history. Not a good thing. There's, there's usually not a positive connotation to the word convulsion.
0: I know you know even you just saying it now really does put it into perspective because she arrived on planet arrakis like three years later and it was three shitty years where she lost her lover lost duke leto her son became distant and terrifying and scary and she basically lost him like through fear She was never close with him, but he died. Yui, she was close with. He betrayed them and died. Like, if you look at Jessica's experience in Dune, not a good time.
1: Yeah, rumor has it she was writing an autobiography, which was called A Series of Unfortunate Events.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh, Lemony Snicket is Jessica of (laughs) House Harkonnen? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's her pen name, yeah. (laughs) We figured it out.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's talk about this chapter and Jessica's arrival. Consider first the excerpt that opens this chapter for us. It is the words of this mysterious preacher character who we don't know a whole lot about yet. And it tells us so much about the current atmosphere on Arrakis. Quote, The Fremen must return to his original faith, to his genius in forming human communities, he must return to the past, where that lesson of survival was learned in the struggle with Arrakis. The worlds of the Imperium, the Lance Rod, and the Chome Confederacy have no message to give him. They will only rob him of his soul. And quote, "Oh, this is what the preacher is out here saying, and people are listening."
0: I am immediately team preacher. <laughs> <laughs> Just the artifice, the. Fucking people in power, the bureaucracy, nothing to offer the purity of, like, human communities. Yeah. And all it'll do is rob you of meaning and, like, life and your soul. Oh. Yeah. Hell yeah.
1: (laughs) It's a convincing argument. And look, Leo, you're not alone in believing him. Yeah. Think of how shockingly similar the preacher's sentiment here is to the thoughts that were racing through Stilgar's mind in chapter one. Right. The same doubts, the same second guessing of Muad'Div's effect on the Fremen, of introducing the Fremen into the Imperium, into the Rod, into Chome, and this longing for the old ways of the desert. The preacher saying the Fremen must return to the original faith, go back to survival in the desert. That is exactly what Stilgar is thinking too. And we talked about in our previous book club in Messiah, About how there were already signs of unrest within Paul's empire, even while he was still alive. And it's clear that this dissent has spread. Now that the luster of sort of Muad'Dib's presence and his reign has started to fade, all that's left is his tyrant sister who doesn't have the same powers. She might still be holy, she might still be worshipped by a lot of people, but she's not Muad'Dib. Right. And that introduces a lot of doubt, particularly into the Fremen. And this is the political situation that Jessica is returning to. And she's not unaware of this. She knows all of this is going on.
0: Right. And, I mean, with all of that in mind, it then makes perfect sense why Jessica would make her arrival the statement it is. Yeah. (laughs) Right? (laughs) For real. To be even the concubine of of Duke Leto Atreides, we know Jessica is a master of, yes, like, religion manipulation and things like that but also statecraft and also politics and she understands the chessboard that's currently in play yeah and she understands that like sometimes you just need to pour a cup of freshly harvested blood onto the (laughs) chessboard to make a statement (laughs) like standing in her transport she's scanning these people and she's looking at them all she's kind of sweeping her gaze over all of these people who are here to be like, oh my God, it's the mother of our God. And as she even just steps into the light, we get this little quote slowly as befitted the mother of a God, Jessica moved out of the shadows and onto the lip of the ramp. End quote.
1: Uh, I don't know why that quote gives me goosebumps, but just picturing like, what is a mother of a God supposed to walk? Like, Right, but she does it here. This is Lady Jessica, mother of Paul Moira Atreides. Something about that really gets me.
0: Jessica knows here are people who see me as the mother of a god, so I will move in a way that is befitting of that. Lato Atreides, the words of people expect Bravura, so I cultivate an air of Bravura. Right?
1: Yeah. Ah, oh, such a good point, Leo.
0: Yeah, these are characters who understand how they are perceived and are able to play within that space jessica is supremely capable and all of these characters who we've been with for the last four chapters being like oh fuck oh fuck oh fuck she's coming back she's coming back it makes sense yeah they're justified
1: justified in their anxiety yeah (laughs) Yeah. and and look she gives them reason to be anxious (laughs) because The best reminder of her bravura and her legend and her power and her capabilities is yet to come. It's about to happen. It's going down.
0: (laughs) Yeah. go Because as she steps
1: out into the light. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody better be going down as quickly as possible.
0: (laughs) As quickly as possible.
1: (laughs) As she steps into the light, the crowd sinks to its knees. And then just the most batshit crazy scene plays out. Gurney and his men immediately emerge from behind her in the transport. And along with agents who are already planted within the onlookers. How long have they been there? <laughs> right. They all begin arresting and straight up killing anyone who took too long to bow, who took too long to get to their knees in front of the holy mother of Paul and
0: Incredible.
1: And all of this takes place in the span of 3 minutes. You I picture this as like a very cinematic like orchestrated moment, you know? Yeah. All the puzzle pieces start moving in the same heartbeat.
0: Slow motion set to a classical piece of music as blood spills into the sand.
1: <laughs> right, right. And through it all, Jessica, quote, stood with arms outstretched, blessing by her presence, keeping the throng subservient. She read the signs of spreading rumors, though, and knew the dominant one because it had been planted. The reverend mother returns to weed out the slackers, end quote. Holy <laughs> fucking oh. <laughs> shit. What a power play. What a classic Benny Gesserit thing to do. Plant a thing, use it to execute an action.
0: Yeah. Missionaria Protectiva in two steps. <laughs>
1: for real insane and to wrap up this first takeaway about her arrival i want to take a few minutes to analyze what just took place because yes it is a power play it is a flex from the mother of muadib but i think there's a bit more to it than that too because recall the political turmoil that's currently taking place both on arrakis but within the Imperium at large, the cracks were already showing way back in Dune Messiah a decade ago. Right, and it's obvious that there's now major unrest within the Empire. I almost get the sense that things are kind of on the verge of full-on uprising at this point. Right, and it's also important to remember that there are doubts growing within the Fremen. Stillgar. One of the most ardent believers of Paul Muad'Dib as a messiah is filled with inner turmoil. The preacher is out here openly preaching, I guess, (laughs) against (laughs) the Atreides rule, telling the Fremen to turn their backs on the Imperium and everything that Paul Muad'Dib built. Jessica obviously knows all this. We know she's a master of statecraft. And so I think this action from her part, this entrance... Is both a show of power, a statement, but also a very smart preemptive strike against danger. You can imagine that some people in this crowd, there's half a million people here, were perhaps plotting to take out the mother of Muad'Dib now that she's back on the planet. right? And this is a preemptive strike. Grab the people that may be dangerous. Grab the people that might be planning an uprising and let's get to them before they get to us.
0: Also, the way that interfaces with her understanding of the nature of Muad'Dib's rule, because the thought of the believers, the thought of the people who fell first to their knees is not going to be, wow, that's a fucking overreaction. Good Lord. Did that guy to my right just get fucking knifed? That's crazy. (laughs) No, they're like, thank God someone's here to put an end to this lollygagging bullshittery that's coming up. Like, she knows that to the enemies, to her enemies, this sends a very strong signal. I'm here and I'm ready to take action. And she knows that to the believers, to the people that she wants on her side, that this is going to be seen very favorably. And we see that immediately. Stilgar is like, hey, I fucking love it. (laughs) Straight to it, aren't you? You love to see it. Love to see it. They high five. Like, (laughs) it's a real moment. Where you see, I mean, everything you've said, right? This knowledge of the pieces in play, and she's using them masterfully.
1: Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And that's why we wanted to talk about it here in our first takeaway. There's so much at play here, and there's so much being said by her actions. Amazing stuff. And it sets the stage for it's an interesting story to unfold. Jessica has made a statement, and you can imagine Alia now feels the pressure to respond.
0: Yeah. Plans within plans within plans. Dune, baby! <laughs> Dune, baby! <laughs> well, for our second takeaway, let's take a minute, let's talk about Leto and Ganema. A lot, as we've talked about, has changed in the universe of Dune, in the decades since the events of the end of Messiah, right? Like, the dream of a green Arrakis is fucking happening. You know, the planet is shifting, the people, the mythology is shifting, we have new characters, we have new stuff happening, we've got remote-controlled tigers, folks. <laughs> but nothing has changed as much as Leto and Ganema. At the end of Dune Messiah, they were literally just born infants. Yes, the most capable infants. But the other thing that's kind of strikes me is like, that was the introduction to these characters, right? That... Leto and Ganema were just immediately aware and and cognizant. Sure, we expect them to be tremendous, powerful characters. Even so, even as you expect the children of the Kwisatz Haderach to be pretty significant, it is hard to prepare yourself for their chapters because of a dynamic that exists between them and really how dense their chapters can be. With, yeah. uh, with foreshadowing, but also with, like, world-building in a way that's really exciting and interesting. And really, that dynamic that I'm talking about is that, like, we knew Alia as a character, but we really didn't get an exploration of her abilities and what she can and can't do. With Leto and Ganema together, they can talk to each other and they can hash out ideas. They can say, can we do that? And the other one goes, ah, I'm not sure. I don't think we can. And we as the reader then suddenly know so much more about preborn, and maybe what they can and can't do, right?
1: Right. And it's interesting to see these two, I mean, like kids is the wrong word for them, but these two kids <laughs> right. yeah. trying to figure it out together because we spend all of Dune and Dune Messiah in Paul's head struggling to drive the fucking prescient bus by himself because <laughs> yeah. no one else has ever done it and no one else can even come close to Knowing what he's experiencing, right? But here are twin siblings who know exactly what each other's experiences are, right? And you're you're so right. We get all this incredible world building about being preborn and about having prescient abilities and other memory that we don't in the first two books because we're only inside Paul's head as he's stumbling through prescience
0: with all these side characters going. But have you seen it? Seen it? And he's like, oh my God, shut the fuck oh up. Oh my God, right?
1: How do I fucking explain this to you? <laughs> but here, like, Leto and Ganema are out here, like, almost finishing each other's sentences because Sandwiches. of how close they are. Sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're right. I-, I love the change we get, Is we-, we are now no longer following the struggles of a singular character, and we have two people with very similar experiences giving us clues into what it's like to live like them and have these powers. And there are a number of scenes we wanted to pull from today's reading that give us some interesting insight and raise some questions and don't necessarily give us answers, but certainly raise some very interesting lore questions.
0: And again, exciting at the beginning of a book (laughs) to have questions with no (laughs) answers. But first up, let's talk about them with hurrah. They pull out their first trick. First trick in their book, speaking to each other in an ancient language. Because, yeah, they just can. At one point, Leto reflects in something in French. It's this ancient Terran language that's been lost to time. I love this trick. I also find it satisfying because we've seen one of House Atreides' strengths throughout Dune is the ability to communicate in the Atreidian battle language. That is a skill and something that house atreides is kind of known for leaning into it is cool to see this kind of evolution of that these two pre-born atreides basically having their shared language amazing love that
1: such a cool touch and the entire time i was like what what language is it spanish yeah. Yeah. is it like what what is, what is this scene in the movie gonna <laughs> Pig sound <Latin>. like <laughs> <laughs> Right. Are they? Is it Ubby Dubby from Zoom? Like, is, you know, it's got to be something obscure.
0: <laughs> that would be very silly. It's Welsh. <laughs> they don't understand each other. <laughs> yeah. But I also have to wonder about, like, did they have to consult the memories to kind of learn the language? Like, did they have to remember the learning process of their mm. ancestors in any case, regardless, because I, I don't know, I think this, this begins this pattern of, like, what is the extent of their powers? And that is really kind of the, the takeaway here. Because in that same conversation, another worrying topic comes up, which is abomination. And what strikes me, I mentioned it earlier, but what strikes me is how little they know. Like, no one is certain of anything. But Leto and Ganema are worried about Ali Atreides. Having fallen victim to a persona from her other memory. And they reiterate like when you awaken other memory in the spice agony, your fully established identity guards you against this kind of possible coup or takeover, right? Like as an adult, adult Jessica, when she went through the spice agony, knew who adult Jessica was. So there was very it, nearly impossible for any risk of a past memory or persona being dominant enough to take over right right but for pre-born like alia ganima and uh and leto they were assaulted by those other memories before they had identity before they had an ego and id like that their personalities hadn't formed yet
1: that being said though leto and ganima have not experienced this yet And this is, yet again, another mystery they don't have a clear answer to. Neither of them knows why. Quote, Why don't we suffer from this inner assault? Perhaps our parents stand guard within us, Leto said. Then why not guardians for Alia as well? I don't know. It could be because one of her parents remains among the living. It could be simply that we are still young and strong. Perhaps when we're older and more cynical... And quote, and Leto kind of drifts off there. But they're here, like, talking back and forth, literally just throwing theories out, because they yeah. don't know. It could be one of these things. It could be a combination. It could be all of them. Who knows?
0: Also, this idea of parents standing guard, other memory parents standing guard, is such an so interesting... It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but also an interesting wrinkle to this whole other memory thing. Like... We start to see maybe these internal personas have agency to a degree, Mm -hmm. but they, they, yeah, you're right. They're kind of just throwing things at the wall and seeing if they stick. It's just shocking to see these two infinitely wise characters be like, we have no fucking clue. So little is known about this. Right. And that's when Alia joins the scene. And it's Speak of the de- speak of the abomination. Speak of the abomination. It's the new way we'll say that. <laughs> but also like, there's this little moment of almost like pre-born camaraderie, right? Like she's given them advice. She's like, all right, listen, kids, as a pre-born, here's what you need to know. Which has gotta feel good for Leto and Ganema. Like yeah imagine this is something that Alia, I'm sure, wish she had. As they discuss basically why the twins aren't going to go with Alia to meet Jessica in person, Leto says this, and I thought this was so interesting, quote, You've told us many times that the memories we hold from those who've passed before us lack a certain usefulness until we've experienced enough with our own flesh to make them reality. My sister and I believe this, end quote. Wow. Which is so interesting because it's so easy to see Leto and Ganema as these superhumans, but we see Leto struggling with the balacet because his muscle hadn't, you know, like he hadn't trained his muscles yet to realize what he knows in his mind. Right, And it's a fascinating limitation to this pre-born condition, which could be seen as this incredible power. Even if you have all the knowledge, your firsthand experience is necessary for being able to leverage that power or being able to utilize that experience. It's just fascinating from a world-building perspective to explore what these pre-born characters can and and specifically cannot do.
1: Right. And and this actually leads wonderfully into the last moment we we wanted to highlight as well because there's another limitation Uh, that they realize as well. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of this conversation, when Alia leaves... The twins wonder why they have no preborn ancestors. Are they the first? Yeah. And it's at this moment they're like, wait a second.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Maybe we do have preborn ancestors and we just can't access their memories. Leto says, quote, ah, yes, the old unanswered question. Do we really have open access to every ancestor's total file of experience? End quote and i'm reading this over
0: here like do you tell me please it's unanswered why (laughs) answer it please it's an old unanswered question what (laughs) why didn't someone answer it i won't be able to sleep tonight why why is this not priority one (laughs) so interesting yeah oh my gosh
1: baffling that first of all this is coming up now for <laughs> right. two books now we've assumed that any Be- Benny Gesserit with other memory any preborn with other memory just can like access everything from their ancestors and for the first time here from Leto and Ginema we're being told well maybe not everything
0: right also combined with the fact that like these personas might have agency we talk about plans within plans within plans <laughs> what about kidding. memories
1: within memories within <laughs> memories
0: just personas within personas within it's nuts oh my god it's so crazy but again leto and ganima are figuring this stuff out together and doing their best to be cautious and be safe but also there is this sense of foreboding and i, I always assume with these characters you just have to be prepared for what the future holds yeah but a very eventful chapter. <laughs> yeah. Very eventful passage. No kidding.
1: Yeah. Uh So many questions. So few answers. I <laughs> yeah. love it. What a great it's start great. to a book.
0: I know. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> well, those are our takeaways for today's episode. We are going to get into, finally, biting down on, I think I just heard the oven ding. These spice morsels are ready. Ready for consumption. So we're going to plate them up. We're going to serve them right after another quick break. So stick around. We've got some yummy, yummy spice morsels for your ears, right after this.
1: Welcome back, folks. Hope you're hungry, because it's time for the spice morsels. First up, let's talk about Grand Uncle Stilgar. From today's reading, we get this passage. Quote, These twins now, through Chani, their mother and my kinswoman, my blood flows in their veins. I am there with Muad'Dib and Chani and all the others. End quote. This is a thought that Stilgar is having in, in the opening chapter of today's reading.
2: Right.
1: If we look at the family lineage, we know that Chani was the daughter of Kynes. From the Dune Encyclopedia, we also learn that Stilgar, at age 17, was arranged as blood brother for the then two year old baby Liet Kynes. Right. So from that point on, Stilgar basically had a hand in raising slash looking out for Liet as they both grew together. And it makes sense then that though they're not related technically by blood, they are a family in all but blood, which effectively then makes Stilgar, through their mother, through Chani a sort of grand-uncle to Leitu and Kanima. Right. Which is fun to think about.
0: Next up, we have Hark al ada not Hark al-Harba. What? (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) very quick morsel here. Loyal listeners will recall we did a whole episode on basically the Shakespeare of the Dune universe, Hark al-Harba. And Hark al-Harba has, like, got a great life. He was a restaurant owner. He wrote plays. I Great love episode. Go his listen story is one. so much fun. We've had a few listeners email us about, oh, isn't he the one that writes the forewords to all of these chapters in Children of Dune? And in Children of Dune, you may have noticed a number of these forewords, instead of someone like Irulan, they are attributed to Hark al different person. <laughs> and it is confusing, to be clear. Yeah. Uh huh. But especially if you are reading Children of Dune for the first time and you listen to Gamjabar, just wanted to make it very clear, especially because we've gotten emails about it. Hark Al Adah is a different character. Hark Al Harba, Shakespeare of Dune. Go listen to that episode. It's cool.
1: For sure. Next, spice morsel, brick.
0: What is that word? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we get it a, a <laughs> lot in the Sardaukar <laughs> chapter.
1: We do. We meet this Sardaukar Levenbreg, which we are told is a rank within the Sardaukar, an aid to a Bashar. And this is a new Dune word for our Dune vocabulary. So this will be on the final, folks. Start taking notes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, indeed.
1: The various ranks of the Sardaukar forces are actually a little tough to pin down, and I don't know that they're very clearly written out explicitly anywhere. But we do want to talk about what we know. From Frank's own writings and from the Dune Encyclopedia. Right. Looking at Frank's writings from Dune, we get a few definitions from the end of the book in the terminology of the Imperium. A Bashar is defined as, quote, an officer of the Sardaukar, a fractional point above colonel in the standardized military classification, rank created for military ruler of a planetary sub district. Bashar of the Corps is a title reserved strictly for military use. End quote. Okay. Okay. Next up, we have the rank Bursag, which is defined as, quote, a commanding general of the Sardaukar. End quote. Real simple. Yeah. General. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, the third rank we have a definition for is Cade, which is defined as, quote, Sardaukar officer rank given to a military official whose duties call mostly for dealings with civilians, a military governorship over a full planetary district above the rank of Bashar, but not equal to a Bursag. End quote. Right. So to clarify how those rankings work, the highest station of the Sardaukar military at the time of Children of Dune is Bursag. Right. And then below that, you have Cade. And then below that, you have Bashar. And then from today's reading, we learn that an 8 to a Bashar, so right below Bashar, is called a Levenbrek.
0: Right. But uh, I actually found, the uh, just because I love etymology and I love where words come from, Levenbrek is actually a uh, portmanteau. It's a combination of words, but from Dutch and German crossing a linguistic divide, which is kind of cool. Fun. Uh, Leven... In Dutch means to live, or life. And then breck, or brech, means to break, auf Deutsch, in German, which is super cool. So this sort of life-breaker is the sort of, like, translation. Does that have to mean anything? Not necessarily. I did see, though, on uh, one of the sort of fandom websites that I saw an explanation that I, I thought was pretty good, which is... The lifebreaker, someone who would like make sure that the Sardaukar forces are subservient so that the Bashar can focus on like leading. So you're kind of breaking the life of the the uh, potentially willful troops, making sure they fall in line, making sure they are working as cogs in the machine of the Sardaukar army by breaking their lives. That's one possible interpretation. Yeah. Another one was that it is a lifelong role. So it's like you you go until your life breaks i don't know a couple of explanations but that's that leavenbrick kind of cool
1: that's so neat love an etymology lesson
0: (laughs) (laughs) our final morsel today Quinats. we've heard about them and we've talked about them in past book club episodes but we've also never taken really the time to talk about them and honestly i was in the dark i was totally ignorant about quenots I'm probably still saying it wrong is how ignorant I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was murky about what they are, and I was also... I struggled at visualizing what they look like, which, as always, I find gets in the way of me truly getting lost in this universe. So, let's talk about quinats. In our final chapter today, we get this brief passage. Quote, Directly beneath him, on the desert floor, plants grew in a profusion of greens watered by quinat, which flowed partly in the open, partly in covered tunnels. The water came from giant wind trap collectors behind him on the highest point of rock. End quote. So that kind of explains what it is. A quinot is a mostly covered tunnel, but it's from a water source, either like a naturally occurring well, or in this case a wind trap, you know, like basin, downhill, using kind of gravity to Bring the water through this underground tunnel that ends and outlets at a point of planting, like a planting patch. Like you, you want to irrigate this land. Well, you have that irrigated patch at the base of the quinat. Hopefully, that helps for anybody who didn't know what quinats are, and if you uh, have experience with them firsthand, if you are from a region that uses them actively, please write in. If there's anything you think we should know about them, we'd love to hear from you.
1: Yeah. Podcast at gmail.com.
0: That's the one.
1: <laughs> oh, and that's it, Leo. That's it. This is only the start of the journey, but for now, we are done. The first 50 pages of Children of Dune complete.
0: I cannot wait. Can we just record right now for 51 through 100? <laughs> like, I cannot wait. This book is so <laughs> stinking good. I'm so excited.
1: I can't wait. Well, dear listener, for the next episode, you got some homework. Make sure that you have read through page 99 in the paperback copy of the book, or if you have a different copy, read through the chapter that ends on the sentence, quote, You are trusted with important duties, Maurice said. I am
0: proud of you. End quote. I'm remembering that chapter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> amazing! Can't, almost literally, cannot wait to talk about it.
1: Yeah, my dad never told me he was proud of me, but he did.
0: <laughs> I think this is a work of fiction. I'm starting to think this book is not literally true. <laughs> Fathers being proud of their sons? No, no, it couldn't happen. Nah. <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network at LordParty.com. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. Let's eat some spice morsels.
1: Let's bite in. Bite in is the phrase. What's the phrase? Uh, Dig in. Bite bite to dig in. That's the
2: phrase. God damn it.
0: Bite in, everybody. (laughs) Bite in, y'all. Joe Biden. (laughs) Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) That got me. That got me good. It's
2: a good blooper right there.